Well, good morning, church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. That's good. I sense some energy in the room, which is a great thing. Well, if you don't know already, today is Worship Sunday. And so we're going to be worshiping God in a moment again um, for a while. But right now, I just want to spend some time this being Worship Sunday to kind of reframe worship for us. You know, every once in a while, we need a bit of a recalibration. Don't you agree? Uh, We all need a little bit of a mid-course correction. We're kind of like cars that are are prone to drift over time as we just go about our daily lives. And why is that? Why is that? It's because with anything, with anything, as we become familiar, as we become uh, used to uh, and, and repetitive over certain actions and activities, even the most purposeful things in life can become rote, right? and they can lose their intentionality over time. Anyone identify with that? Let me give you an example. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of helping uh, someone that I've grown up with officiate their wedding. And so I was helping them plan the the structure of the run sheet of their ceremony, and I was coming to the vows, and uh, I was giving them feedback on the vows. I was like, okay, so you wanna make sure that your vows are uh, relatively the same length, Um, maybe also around the same seriousness. You don't want one person to be like cracking jokes and and making fun of the other person, the other person to be all serious and stoic. And and so in the course of this dialogue, um, I was reminded of how important those vows are. They are actually really the crux of the marriage, are they not? They are the vows that you are making before your other half and before God that you would keep for the rest of your life. And so as I was uh, prepping prepping them and thinking about it, uh, the thought came to mind, oh no, what did I vow on my wedding day? Right? And then, so I quickly pulled up on my phone. I was like, oh, good thing I saved it. And I, I pulled it up and I was, I was reading through it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've only been married for almost three years now. Only three years. And I've almost like forgotten my vows. And so I went back and I refreshed them in my mind. But it just goes to show you, right? That even the most purposeful things as you go through life and as the activities and the demands of life get placed on us can become rote and almost losing their intention in their intentionality over time. Do you agree? And so today I want to put forward for us three recalibrations, three corrections to worship. You know, as a church, we come together week in, week out, and we worship God. And that is amazing. But I can guarantee us that also in the course of church and connect groups and sermons and things that we need to go for and courses that we need to sign up for and giving and all that kind of stuff, sometimes we can lose sight of what worship is really about. So allow me this morning to offer us three corrections to worship that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to work in us. So can we pray? Open up our spirits to what the Lord has to say. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come into this place. Ultimately, worship is always about you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would fix our eyes and our attention on you today. Help us to realize with a, with a posture and a heart of humility before you, God, uh, where we have drifted off course and where we need a recalibration in our hearts. Speak to us, convict us of who you are, and transform us into the kind of worshipers that you desire for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, the first correction that I would like to propose to us this morning is that we need to make a correction to our posture in worship, a correction to our posture. 
What do I mean? Well, in the Bible, there are three words that are most commonly translated as worship, as you find it in our Bible. The first word is shakar. It's mentioned 175 times, and it means to bow down. Okay? The second word is abad. It is mentioned 289 times, and it means to work or to serve as subjects, like a king and his subjects, all right? So bear that in mind. And number three is the word proskuneo. It's mentioned 54 times. This is the New Testament version of worship. And it means, uh, translated, to kiss the hand in reverence. Uh, This is not a romantic kiss, the kind of kiss that you give your wife on a date night. This is the kind of kiss that a subject brings towards their king as they approach him on his throne. You know, you kiss the ring to show allegiance, to show honor. That's the kind of kiss we're talking about. Or it also means to prostrate, again, to bow down, to prostrate oneself in honor. So what do we learn from this? Because these actions, as we look at them, to bow down, to prostrate yourself in front of somebody, to serve as subjects, these actions are unfamiliar, aren't they? They're almost foreign to us in our lives today. But there is a common thread that links these acts together. You see, all these actions are actions of reverence, of honor towards someone that is of a higher status. Do you see that? Why else do you bow before someone? Why else do you serve them as, a, as their subject? Why else do you kiss their ring in allegiance and honor towards them? Because we are acknowledging that they are someone of a higher status. And look, we need to catch this, church. Worship is rooted. It is absolutely grounded in the posture that recognizes the natural order, that God is in every way, in all ways, he is above us. Can anybody say amen to that? And because he is above us, he ought to be feared, he ought to be revered, and he ought to be honored. Let me give you an example. Um, I'm a bit of a fisherman by, by hobby. Uh, in any spare time I can get, I usually make my way down to the river, and so I was, this, this is the thought that came, came to mind when I was thinking about this. You guys all have heard of the food chain before? You learned something that you learn in, in school? Well, the food chain basically dictates that there are things that eat things that eat things that eat things, right? And so at the bottom of the food chain, well, the seafood chain in my mind, uh, is the little crab, right? The little crab is, is, is down on the, the seafloor, and he's just scavenging around. He's not really uh, a threat to anybody. He just goes around trying to find little meals. Whatever is dead and lying there, he'll go and find that, and that's what he eats. And above him... Uh, is the squid. The squid comes around and sees a crab scuttling around and eats that. And above that is the fish. And above that uh, is the seal. Above the seal is the shark. Above the shark is the killer whale. You You get the drift? But all of these creatures, they all live and behave in a way which acknowledges the presence and existence of a higher being, of a superior being, right? All of them have to, by natural order, acknowledge the presence of a being that is in some way superior and greater to them. And in the same way, worship is rooted in acknowledging the existence and presence of the most superior being. Because we have to understand in in church, all right, we have to grapple our minds around this, that in all ways, God is superior and we are inferior. God is greater, we are lesser. God is above, we are below. The Bible says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are above ours. He is the creator. We are simply the created. He is God and we are not. 
In every way, God is above us. He is superior to us. You know, this morning, it doesn't matter how much you exercise or lift weights at the gym, God is infinitely stronger than you are. Right? It doesn't matter how many books you've read or how many PhDs you've accumulated to your name. God is infinitely wiser than you. It doesn't matter how well you treat people or how just you think you are. God is infinitely more morally excellent than you are. Can anybody say amen? It doesn't matter how long you spend in front of the mirror. God is more beautiful than you are. <laughs> but this grates, all right? This, this talking about this, it kind of grates against our modern way of thinking, right? Because in the society that we live in today, we like to believe and affirm that everyone is equal. Correct? We don't like this idea of there is somebody that is greater than I am. We're all equal. And this even expresses itself in how we view authority, does it not? Our leaders, our political leaders, we don't like to see them as above us, having authority over us. We like to see them as the everyday man with a position. And so the way that we relate to them, the way that we obey them, the way that we submit to them is affected. We see that in church. We see that in all areas of authority. In Australia, we have something called the tall poppy syndrome. Has anybody heard of that? The tall poppy syndrome. It's basically a syndrome where we like to criticize and tear down those who seem to be putting their heads above the rest, whether they're succeeding more financially, whether they're succeeding more in life, in whatever aspect of their life, we like to tear them down, take them down a few pegs, because we don't like to see people as better than us, right? But we must be careful. We must be careful that you and I, we do not treat God as we treat man, because God is not our peer. God is not our peer. He is above us. And if he is above us, then we cannot debate with God as if our thoughts and our ideas and our ways of life are on the same level as his. And we should never approach God casually, but we should approach him with great respect and great honor. Amen? Let me give you two examples of um, just how holy and just how much reverence and honor God is due in the Bible. In Leviticus chapter 10, it tells the story of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron in the Old Testament. They were the first ordained priests of Israel. Everyone with me so far? And what the Bible says that in Leviticus 10, so they were just ordained, right? Before the people of Israel, they were ordained as the priests, right? In charge of bringing sacrifices before the Lord. And what the Bible says is they came into the presence of God and they offered unauthorized fire unauthorized fire. So they, they brought their senses, they lit incense, and they brought unauthorized fire before the Lord. And at that moment, the Bible says in Leviticus 10 that from the presence of God came out fire that consumed them, and they died. They actually died. God struck them down. It was because they offered something in a way, they approached God in a way which was not authorized, which did not respect the ways of God. Now, that's a hard thing to hear. And you might be thinking, well, that's a one-off thing. Well, let me bring you another one. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13 is the story of Uzzah. I don't know if you guys remember this, but the story of Uzzah is where they are transporting the Ark of the Covenant, remember? And they're transporting it on, uh, on a cart that is being towed by oxen, right? And 
as it's being towed by oxen, well, first and foremost, it's not supposed to be towed by oxen. And the Bible says, when God instructed the Israelites, that when you move the ark of the, uh, the covenant, when you, move the, um, when you move the ark, you're supposed to be carrying it on your shoulders. The priests are supposed to sh- carry it on their shoulders, right? So first and foremost, they made a mistake there. But it was being towed by oxen on a cart. And so the Bible says that as it was traveling on its way, one of the oxen stumbled. And as it stumbled, the cart began to slip. And as the cart began to slip, the ark began to slip, and it was going to fall. And so Uzzah, looking at, this, uh, uh, looking at this predicament, he sees it, and he says, oh no. And so what he does is he reaches out his hand to stabilize the ark, to prevent it from falling down. And in that moment, what happens? God strikes him dead. Does that strike you as strange? Because for me, I'm like, oh, Uzzah had such great intentions, did he not? Like he was, he was trying to save the Ark of the Covenant from falling to the floor and, and cracking open. He was trying to save the disgrace of the Ark of the Covenant and yet God struck him dead for touching the Ark. Why? Why was that? Well, it's because it doesn't matter how well-intentioned we are, but we have to approach our God the way that he desires to be approached. Okay? We can't take things for granted. And so God is not our peer. God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. We have to understand that he is in all ways above us. He is to be feared, honored, and revered. And so what is the application for us today? If we want to take on this posture of worship where we acknowledge that God is above us, then here are some applications that I think that you and I need to grapple with. First and foremost is this. We should be thanking God every day for the cross. Amen? Because without it, you and I have no business standing before a holy God and calling him our father right? The pig cannot say of the farmer, that is my father. How much more can man not have the right to say to a holy God, the creator of the almighty, the creator of the universe, to say he is my father. We have no business saying that but for the cross. But because of the cross, the word of God says that you and I now have the ability, the ability to enter into the throne room of God with confidence, boldly, right? Not tentatively, not apprehensively, but boldly we can come into the presence of God and receive help in our time of need. But that is only because of the cross. So Christians, church, if you call yourself a believer, each and every one of us, every single day, should be thanking God for the cross in our lives. It is only because of the cross we have the ability to have our times of devotion. We have the ability to stand here, open up God's word, right? We have the ability to sing out his praises, experience his presence. It is only because of the cross. The second application that we can make, if God really is above and we are below, that we need to revere is that we need to revere the Lord in worship. We need to really revere the Lord in worship. This is something that is disappearing across the face of the earth today. Reverence is not a common uh, attribute of people. But in the church, we are called to revere, to honor the Lord in worship. So what does that mean practically? Well, practically, can I encourage us and can I challenge us, church, that we need to be on time for church? Can I, that's, that's just... A really simple one. We just need to be on time for church. Why? Because if God really is above us and we see the God of the Bible as this holy, righteous God, we cannot casually just walk into service 10 minutes late and be like, hey God, 
I'm here, ready to sing your praises now. Sorry, I was caught up drinking coffee and chatting with my friend outside. We can't, right? So we need to revere the Lord in worship. So be on time. And when you come, when you come to church, engage your heart and mind. Don't tune out. Right now, don't tune out. <laughs> engage your heart and mind. Come with the intention of giving glory to God and hearing him speak to you. Come with the intention of having him change something in your life with the presumption that he has something to say over you, that you are not maybe living exactly in the ways that he wants you to. And so he has a word for you every time we gather. Come with that kind of reverence for the Lord. Is that okay? There was an example, there's the example of the Puritans. Everyone know the Puritans? So they were, uh, they're basically uh, an off branch of, a branch of Christianity in the past. And uh, the Puritans uh, were really good in some senses, which I would like to bring out. One of them is the way that they would prepare for their Sunday service. Did you know that the Puritans, when Sunday service was coming the next day, on Saturday evening, they were already preparing for Sunday service. Now they weren't the preachers, they weren't getting up on stage, they weren't leading worship, they weren't serving, they weren't, it wasn't that kind of thing. They were just ordinary members. But on Saturday night, they would gather their families around, they would have dinner together, and then they would lead their families in devotions and they would pray and they would prepare their hearts to receive from the Lord the next day. So that when they came into the church service, it wasn't warming up, shaking off, you know, shaking off the eye dust from like waking up late and all that kind of stuff. But they came with hearts that were prepared, ready to serve, ready to hear from their Lord. What an amazing posture of revering the Lord, amen? Now compare and contrast that to some of us here today. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> have a thought, have a thought. I'm not saying, okay, I'm not saying at all that we have to f follow the ways of the Puritans, but there is something in the way that they prepare themselves for their worship, amen? Okay, so first and foremost, we need to thank God for the cross. Second, we need to revere the Lord in worship. Third is this, we need to seek out and submit to the Lord's ways and thoughts. Catch me on this, all right? I was having a conversation with a couple of friends last weekend, and the question was raised, look, if God is really ruling and reigning in our lives, as we say that he is, as we ask him to, then why is it that our lives, you and I, our lives look so similar to the world around us? Have a think about that. Could it be that though we profess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that God is our King, that God is ruling in our hearts, but in reality, we still choose to live out our ways and our thoughts and our desires, not God's ways, God's thoughts and God's desires. Because if we really submitted ourselves to the rule and reign of God, then there is no way that our lives can look identical to the lives of the people around us. Does that make sense? Are you with me? So have a thought about that. If we really revere God as above, if we really take on this posture of worship, God is above, I am below, he is God and I am not, then we need to be seeking out the ways and the thoughts of God and we need to be submitting to those ways and those thoughts. Is that okay? So the first thing that we, we're addressing today is we need to correct our posture of worship. The second thing is this, we need to correct our practice, our practice, how we live out worship, all right? Because worship is practiced, catch me, as both an event and a lifestyle. An event and a lifestyle. You may have uh, grown up in church, and if you have been in church for a while, uh, what happened 
was there was a surge in the 1950s, 1960s, where music started to be on the rise. And so the church worship gathering became very lively, very full of faith. You know, you, get, you got the Maranatha, you got the Don Moans, and, and worship as a, became a big thing in the church space. And it became such a big thing that everybody kind of hopped onto that train. And so um, that was great for a season, but then after a while, we swung to the other side where we thought, you know, wait, worship is not just about the gathering. It's not just about singing songs together. And then so we pushed to the other side and we said, okay, look, don't focus so much on just worshiping here as the church as when we gather, but also think about worship as a lifestyle. You would have heard that, right? Worship is your day in, your day out. It's how you, uh, how you live your life, how you treat your family, how you go to work and all those kind of things. But can I encourage us and can I challenge us to not swing totally to the other side of the pendulum? It is both and. It is not either or, Okay. It cannot just be inside the church or outside the church. It has to be both. Worship is both an event and a lifestyle. Are you with me? It is both living your life for the praise and glory of God outside, but it is also, it is also, and catch this, this is what I want to focus on today, is the expression of your praise and your adoration of God inside the church gathering as well. You know, uh, when I think about this, the passage that comes to mind is Matthew chapter 21 is Jesus telling the parable of the two sons. The parable goes something like this. There's a farmer, and he has two sons. And he asks his first son, he says, will you go out today and work in the vineyard? And the son says, yes, I will. But in the end, he changes his mind, and he doesn't. And then he goes to, uh, the farmer goes to his second son and says, will you go out today and work in the vineyard? And the second son says, no, I won't. But later on, he changes his mind, and he goes out, and he does what the father wants. And then Jesus answers with us, ends the parable with the question, which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, obviously it's the second one, right? But I would like to put forward to you today that wouldn't it be better if there was a third son? A third son who said yes and did yes. Right, it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. That is my encouragement to us this morning. Is there a better third option? You know, it's, it's like, uh, I like to liken this to kind of like a relationship because we all say, you know, Christianity is not a religion, it's, it is a relationship. But can you imagine, can you imagine a relationship between a husband and a wife where there is a husband who gives total affection, total romance to his wife, takes his wife out on nice meals, dates her, hugs her often, says, I love you, I appreciate you, right? But then goes outside and cheats on his wife and is unfaithful. Okay, option A. Option B is um, a husband who goes outside and lives for the sake of his wife, loves his wife dearly, brings home, uh, provides for his wife, always lives, is faithful to his wife, always lives with his wife's preferences and thoughts in mind. But then when he comes home, he shows her no affection, no I love yous, no kisses, no hugs, no words of affirmation, no date nights, barely acknowledges her presence, kind of just stands there. Now, which of these husbands would you prefer, ladies? Do you get my point? Do you get my point? It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. And so I want to challenge you today because in this church, I know that there are people in both groups. There are people who, when you come to church, you love worshiping inside the church gathering. You love to come together. You love to be in church. You love to sing praises to God. But outside the church, your life maybe lacks devotion. It lacks holiness. 
it lacks the reverence and honor of God being expressed and played out in those spheres of your life, in the secret places. Well, the Bible has something to say about that. In Amos chapter five, verse 21, it says, I hate, I despise, this is God talking, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies, your gatherings are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, so good fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But instead, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Matthew 15, uh, in Matthew 15, Jesus describes this. Um, He says these people, when he's talking about the Pharisees, he says, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so they worship me in vain. So if you find yourself in a place this morning where you love to come to church and you love to worship, thank God. I love that. That's great. But can I encourage you that your worship cannot end here, that it needs to be lived out on the outside as well. And there's a second group. The second group is the, like I said, the other extreme, right? You might be focused, so focused on honoring God in your life outside of church, right? Raising a, go- a godly family, living with integrity, going to work and trying to be an, make an impact there, trying to do good in those places, trying to reach out to people. But inside the church gathering, maybe you're like the husband who lacks affection. Maybe you're the husband who wants to love God through outside, through, through, through the outside trappings of life and everything that you do there. And amen for that, because that is honestly probably the harder thing to do. But when you come inside the church gathering, there might be a missing gap inside your affection for God. Well, the word of God, it commands those of you who fit in this group too. It commands us to praise God with our entire being, our entire being, everything that we have, wholeheartedly, holding nothing back. Let me show it to you, all right? I don't have time to go through every single verse uh, and scripture reference, but you'll find that on FCC.live. But for the sake of time, let me go through with you the words that you find for praise inside the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, okay? One of the most common words is barak. Barak. Barak in uh, the Old Testament literally means to kneel, okay? It's a physical action, to kneel before, to bless, okay? Yada is a thankful expression of praise. It's from the root word, which means to throw out the hand. So in other words, it is an expression of thanksgiving, which involves the lifting of the hands, okay? Then there's, related to yada, is the word tauda, which is thanks and praise to God for what he is going to do. Again, the lifted hand is implied. So again, lifted hands. Zamar, praise God with instrumental and sung praise, all right? Musical praise. Play the instruments, what we do every time we gather. When we sing out our praise to God, literally it means to touch the strings, all right? There's the word shabak, which means to commend, to triumph, to glory, to shout, to address in a loud tone. And all the introverts here are getting very uncomfortable. But the Bible commands us that as we are to praise God, we are to praise him loudly, with expression, with confidence and triumph in our voice because that is the God that we serve. Halal. Hey, Pastor Amos talked about the word hallelujah just now. It means, this is, it comes from the root word halal, to shine, to boast, to celebrate, to commend, to sing, to be clear, to rave, to be clamorously foolish. So when you, it says hallelujah, it is not a hallelujah. 
Praise the Lord. Isn't he good? Hallelujah is a command, an encouragement, an exhortation to say, come on, praise the Lord. He is good. Look what he has done for us. Look like a fool for him. He is worthy of praise. Amen. Hallelujah. It's David dancing undignified before the Lord. That is halal. And then there's tehillah, which means high praise, to sing to loud, Lord, loud, loud. Forgive my pronunciation, but you get what I mean. <laughs> so depending on your background, right, or where you come from, how you've grown up in church, you may not feel comfortable expressing some of these actions, and I totally understand that. Your personality is a certain way, your upbringing is a certain way, but nonetheless, nonetheless, right, <clears throat> Scripture makes it clear that being passive is not an option. It's just not an option. Because what is inside has to come out. The, the body, in every way, always expresses what is happening in, on the inside of a person. What is happening in the heart and in the mind of a person is always expressed in the body of a person. You know, last weekend, Manchester United... Hey, see, that is more expression than some of you guys have shown in church in a very long time. I gotta say, all right, so Manchester United was here. They were versing Aston Villa at Optus Stadium. Anybody attend that event? Yeah, okay, great. Now, no real fan of any of the teams celebrates passively at a football game, right? You don't see the guy who's decked out, has got the beanie on, the, the Manchester United uh, scarf, wearing the jersey, and then they score a hat-trick, right? Someone scores a hat-trick from, from, I don't even know who, who's on Manchester United. Sorry, I'm not that big of a fan, but anyway. They score, they score a goal, right? And then they're just, they're just going. Good one. Nice, good goal. Manchester United. Right, no fan celebrates that way. Now, no good husband or no good wife also loves their spouse passively. I hope not. Right? There is always an expression of what is on the inside that has to come out. Now, how much more should we, the recipients of God's grace and forgiveness and life, express our gratitude and our honor to our God and the Savior of our souls, amen? So church, if you are in this place and you are uncomfortable, can I just encourage you, let's all be clamorously foolish for Jesus. It is totally okay for everything that he has done for us. I think my pride is okay to let go a little bit, hey? look a little bit foolish for the Lord. So whatever group you find yourself in, all of us are called to give him our all in worship. Hold nothing back. Whether inside the church or outside the church, he is worthy of our worship. Amen? So let's correct our posture this morning and let's correct our practice. And the last one is, let's correct our purpose. Because what happens when we worship? You know, when we come together and we worship, you know, God is glorified by his people. Amen? Though, he doesn't really need it if you think about it, because God is already infinitely glorious, right? No matter how you live or how you sing, God's, uh, it doesn't really add the tiniest bit of glory to God. Acts chapter 17 says this, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So it's not as if our coming together and our worshiping of God is, gonna, is making God feel better as if it's, oh, 
I needed to pick me up today. Thank you for praising me. Now I remember I'm the glorious one. <laughs> right? It's, it's not doing that. Yes, God does take pleasure when his people worship. But the Bible in the New Testament also gives us a clue about something else that happens not to God, but to us as we worship. Colossians 3:16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice what is happening, that as we sing to God, as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, what is happening? We are teaching and we are admonishing one another. His glory is being made clearer, not to him, but to us. You see, worship is not just a private interaction between you and God. We have to get out of our vocab, and I understand where it comes from, that you know, worship is for the audience of one. Yes, but no. Let me explain. Because worship is not just a private interaction between you and God, it is actually a communal activity by which we all encourage, teach, and admonish each other. Because as we sing, we are standing together in unity, and we aren't singing songs that are just addressed to God, but we are reminding one another, this is who our God is. This is what he has done for us. This is the God that we serve. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he worthy of praise? Isn't he worthy of laying our lives down for? Look at the cross. Isn't it amazing? That is what we're doing as we sing together. We are teaching. We are admonishing. We are encouraging one another. We are building up each other's faith. That's why a lot of the songs that we sing, if you think about it, they aren't just addressed to God, but they're actually addressed to each other, right? Think about it. How great is our God? How, who are we singing to in that moment? Sing with me, how great is our God? God, sing with me. It's not, it's, not, it's not to the Lord. We are addressing one another. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Who, who am I telling to praise? I'm telling you, the church. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forever. For endless days, we will sing your praise. Think, think about it. All the songs that we sing, a lot of the time, we aren't just singing to God. We are singing to each other. We are encouraging each other's faith. We are building each other up. That's why it's different when we worship together, church, versus when you worship alone at home or watch online at home. Bless you. <laughs> but there is a fact that the gathering of the church together is important because we bring our worship and as we worship God, we are also serving and encouraging one another. Your faith as you sing, your passion for God is encouraging my passion for God. My faith is rubbing off on you. We are reminding each other of the God that we serve and the God that we love. Amen? But to what end? To what end? What happens? Is it, is it just so that you know, as we worship together, we all come together, we experience emotional high, maybe shed a tear over what God has done, uh, encourage one another, and then go home? Not really, because as we acknowledge that God is above and that we are below, true worship True worship should lead to the people of God surrendering and submitting their lives to this great God that we serve. Right? It's impossible to sing about the greatness of this God who is above, this King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the universe, and not want to submit and surrender our lives to him. And the next follow-on step is then to be sent out so that his kingdom come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the end goal of worship? 
Revelation chapter 7 says this. This is the vision that John has of heavenly worship. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You want to know what the end game is of worship? It's John's heavenly vision that every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language would be able to stand before the throne of God, glorifying him for the salvation that is found in him. You know, our worship here as we gather is meant to multiply. As we worship, we submit to God. We surrender to his will, and we are sent into the world as his church so that others would join us, so that as they worship, they submit to him, they surrender to his will, and they too are sent, so that every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue would come and give God the glory that he deserves. Amen? So church, don't let your worship end here this morning. We're about to enter into another time of worship And so I don't know what I've said today that has stuck with you. Perhaps there is something where you realize that you need a tweak in your posture, where uh, we profess that God is above, but maybe we don't live that way. Maybe we don't even treat him that way as we come into the gathering. Maybe we don't even see worship that way. Maybe there's something that the Holy Spirit is working on there. Maybe today we need to correct our practice. I encourage you, raise your hands, lift your voice. Not because the worship leader says so or because it makes us feel good, but because that is the God that we serve. He's worthy of that. Live your life inside and outside the church for him. And maybe you need to correct correct your purpose. This morning, maybe you like gathering in the church and then we live live this life. It's very easy where we come to church, we do the Christian thing, but then we go out and our lives remain unchanged. And no one is affected, no one is touched, no one is brought into the kingdom, no one is reached out to. This morning as we worship, can I encourage us to surrender to him, to submit your life to him, and then to accept his calling on your life, his command to go out, to be sent into this world, and to bring others to worship him. Is that okay? Church, would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to glorify you in this place right now. You are so worthy of worship. And Lord, we are sorry for the times where we have taken this for granted, where we have waltzed into your presence, presuming that we can give you our leftovers, our half-hearted words and actions. But Lord, today we want to return to a place of worshiping in spirit and in truth. We want to come back to a place where our worship is genuine, inside and outside, where every area of our heart is surrendered to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So right now in this place, Lord, I want to pray for everybody who is listening, everybody who is under the sound of my voice. Would you stir in us a worshiper's heart, not just about music, but Lord, about glorifying you and honoring the God that we serve. Come and have your way amongst us. 
Lord, I pray that you would draw us close to yourself. Help us to experience your presence, to encourage one another in our worship, and to live our lives for your glory and for your name. In Jesus' name, all of God's people say, amen. Come on, church, let's worship.